matter where you travel or what culture you study, you discover the world's fascination with weddings, don't you? I did a little research on cultural customs and found more than I have time to repeat, but by way of introduction, let me share a few of them with you. There's the Armenian tradition that I learned about reading where the night before the ceremony, the groom's family brings beautifully wrapped boxes to the bride's family. The boxes contain her veil, her shoes, perfume, and even a little chocolate candy. Now, is that a good tradition or what? You may have heard about jumping the broom. It's a wedding tradition that traces all the way back to the days of slavery when slaves were forbidden from marrying, and they created this ritual to represent the beginning of their new life together. In fact, it was tantamount to an exchange of, of rings that they could not afford to buy. Jumping the broom was absolutely binding. I found this. Uh, the Czechoslovakians have interesting uh, wedding traditions, several of them. To start off a Czech wedding reception, someone in the wedding party breaks a plate at the feet of the bride and groom. The newlyweds have to sweep up the pieces together to show their willingness to work together. Isn't that great? Us guys would have to learn how to operate a broom. Not sure how well that worked. I discovered the, the, the traditional German reception has the same ceremony. They go further, though. They break a lot of plates and bowls into pieces in the wedding reception, and then the couple has to sweep them all up. And the bride's probably thinking, I, I want Tupperware. That, that's the answer to this. Toward the middle of the reception party, back to the Czech Republic, all the groomsmen kidnap the bride and whisk her away, and uh, it's the groom's job to find her within a specific period of time or else he must begin to pay the groomsmen money to give him clues, and this is supposedly a way of showing that he will give everything he owns for her. Isn't that great, guys? Isn't that great, ladies? Yeah. <laughs> Although this was interesting. On the night before a traditional Irish wedding, the groom is invited to the bride's house where he has served a cooked goose. <laughs> In America, that doesn't have a positive message, does it? Your goose is cooked, buddy. That's, that's how we think of it. One Latin American custom I found is where the groom is not allowed to see the bride before the wedding day. In fact, it's the father of the bride's unique job to hide her. And then on the day of the ceremony, he brings her to the place of the ceremony, escorts her in, and gives her away. Or he can keep his daughter hidden and never give her away. Okay, I made that part up, but I, I think that's a good custom. One custom I actually saw incorporated into a wedding stateside, uh, the, the gal had, had been raised a missionary kid in the Pacific Rim Islands, and, and uh, the dad escorted her down, and across the aisle was a ribbon there at the front. It had been tied across the aisle and, into a beautiful bow, and when the pastor made the question, delivered the question 
who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father said, her mother and I, he stepped forward, he untied the bow, let the ribbon fall, and escorted her across. Isn't that, isn't that neat? These customs, you know, th- this, is really, this is really what captivates us anyway, right? It's, it's the procession of the bride. That pause, the music begins, and here comes the bride. And every head turns, every neck cranes to see. I mean, that is the moment, isn't it? I mean, what a, what a sight. Every married man to this day remembers, right? <laughs> every married man remembers that sight, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> You got some work to do. You got, you got some sweeping to do when you get home, okay? <laughs> the traditional American wedding, as I found by researching these around the, around the world, a number of cultures I studied, it's interesting, the same, they, they dress as royalty. No matter what station of life you're in, if you're, you're poor, wealthy, whatever, you borrow, you buy, whatever. The, the apparel for the bride and the bridegroom so that you appear on that day as a prince and a princess. This, this custom goes back to the days of, of Christ. The Jewish culture, they would borrow from their wealthiest friends and associates jewelry and clothing so that the bride and groom could appear in public on that day as royalty. They are king and queen for a day. This is the picture and the metaphor of Christ who speaks to his disciples and to us. He says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and I'm going to get you and take you home. And and now we find John in Revelation referring to the wedding procession. The new heavens and new earth are created. In our last study, we studied verse 1 of chapter 21. I invite you back to that chapter in Revelation and now... We're going to watch, here comes the bride, take on new and biblical meaning. For our study today, I want to introduce you to three primary observations, three major observations. First, heaven's permanent relocation. Secondly, heaven's primary relationship. And thirdly, heaven's profound reversal. Let's get a running start at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, that is the first creation, passed away. Now there may be some confusion as to the reference of heaven here. We didn't have time in our, our last session. Let me, let me speak to this uh, just momentarily here. There's confusion because this is a reference and, and it's, it's, it's found in the form of a singular noun as heaven. This word, uranos, appears throughout the Bible, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and, of course, the New Testament, as a reference to heaven, and context tells us which heaven we're talking about because there are actually three of them. Not three different ones based on how good you are. You go to the bottom one if you're not that good, the middle one if you're a little better, and the top one if you're really good. That's Mormon theology. That's Mormon doctrine. This word refers to three layers, as it were, of heavens occupied by different things, and the context determines which one you're talking about. For the sake of alliteration, I'll give you these three. The first is what we could call the home of sparrows. This is the atmosphere around us. This is the air. These are the fluffy clouds. These are the birds. 
Jesus Christ used the word heaven, uranos, to refer to this layer, so to speak, when he said, observe uh, the birds of heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. That's literally the word uranos. Look at the birds of heaven. Obviously referring to the atmosphere. James uses that word when he speaks of rain coming down from heaven. He's obviously referring to clouds, the atmosphere. And it's been raining, I suppose, today. I look through that. I can see outside. I don't get out much in the morning here, and I can see a little sunlight, so maybe it stopped raining, but it was raining this morning. And, and, and James uses uh, this expression. He says, the rain, as he talks about Elijah's praying, the rain fell from heaven. He's talking about the atmosphere. I heard it this morning early. I got up this morning. The alarm went off, went in took a shower, got all dressed. And then just as I was finishing up, I looked down at a little, little clock there to my left and it said 3.59. <laughs> Somehow my clock had been turned around a little bit. I'd done something wrong and I was, I was all dressed up, nowhere to go. Let me tell you that. <laughs> so I went into my study and I took off my, my jacket and sat there, and, and I have an overstuffed chair. I do all my reading in, and I, I, listened, I listened to the rain. It's wonderful. By the way, if you see me afterward, my shirt's wrinkled. Be patient. I've had it on since 3.30, okay? <laughs> in fact, I'm surprised my tie matches um, that early. Well, th- this, is, this is the atmosphere, and the word used is heaven. We call the second layer still used with the word uranus, heaven, the home of the stars, sun, moon, and stars. This is the astronomical heaven. This is the outer universe where we could say the planets live. Jesus Christ used the word when he predicted the coming tribulation. He said, the power of heaven will be shaken. And he goes on to describe In this prophetic passage, Matthew 24, verse 29, how the sun will be darkened and the moon won't uh, reflect light and the stars will fall from their orbs. He uses the word heaven. This is a word for that layer out there. We need a telescope to see well. That is the galaxy region. The first layer is the home of the sparrows. The second layer is the home of, of the stars. The book of Hebrews uses this word in context where Jesus Christ, the creator we read, laid the foundations of the earth and created by his hands heaven. You could render it the heavens, Hebrews 11.10. Same word, a different reference, a different place. We have the home of sparrows, the home of stars. Thirdly, we have the home of saints. This is the place of God's throne that we read of, described. This is the place where the spirits of departed Believers go and are there even now awaiting the resurrection of their bodies in due time. This is, this is the heaven in mind when Jesus, again, uses the same word, uranos, but he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
He's seen as, in that place, Paul describes as literally the third heaven. Paul calls it that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's transported, given a, a tour of heaven, and he says, I was, it was so glorious, I didn't know if I was in a body or not. So you have the first heaven, the layer, so to speak, the home of sparrows, the second layer, a little further out, the home of stars, sun and moon, and then Beyond is what we think of as the Bible refers to it as the home of the saints. The spectacular glory of God. Now, when John uses the word heaven, uranus, here in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, he's referring to the home of the sparrows and the home of the stars. That first creation is going to be done away, and we studied that in our last session, and will be recreated, no doubt using the elements of this universe. God is effectively creating a new universe. Now, the reason I want to point that out is because John is going to use the same word for heaven, translated heaven, in your text in in two verses, but he's going to be talking about two different heavens. In verse 1, he refers to the first layer and the second layer of heaven, and In verse 2, he's going to use the word again, and he's going to refer to heaven, only this time it'll be that third layer, the place of God's abode, as it were, the home of the saints. Notice where John writes in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Which informs us, by the way, that God does not replace this third heaven with a new one. It isn't replaced... It is relocated, as we studied. John will see it, the heaven of God's throne, the abode of the saints. He will see it descending literally, physically, and resting on a newly created heaven and earth. That is, a newly created planet with its outer universe being recreated. This is the heavenly city Abraham was looking for which had foundations. It was literal, physical, whose builder and designer, architect, was God. This is further in Hebrews 12, where we read, But you have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Revelation 21 tells us it descends and rests on a new earth. The general assembly the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and God, the judge of all and the spirits of righteous men made perfect. This new Jerusalem comes down from the third heaven. It is the golden city where God occupies his throne and with his saints displays his glory as seen by John descending, literally becoming the capital city of the eternal state on a new earth surrounded by a new universe. Clear enough? We've been singing about that, by the way, for years, perhaps you have, without even thinking about the text, or maybe you have. Uh, One commentator introduced it to me, and I saw it with new eyes and went back, pulled out my hymnal, and read it. It's the hymn text that reads one of the stanzas, This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. This is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 
This is all about the satisfaction of Jesus Christ in his new creation. And it is glorious. Would you note how John refers to this city in verse 2? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready. It's made ready. The word ready is the word prepared. It's the same word used by our Lord when he told his disciples, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to go away, and what? Prepare a place for you. John 14, 2. Hebrews 11, 6 told us of the saints of old that they desire a better country. Interesting phrase. They desire a better country. He then explains that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared, same word, a city for them. The Apostle Paul uses the same word when he says of heaven, Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them who love him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, for those who belong to him. And all the saints then of all time are now experiencing together the finishing touch, as it were, as that glorious heaven descends in the form of this golden city, and heaven and earth are one. It rests upon earth, and the eternal state officially begins, and it will never end. Now, I want you to notice how John begins his description, which is going to become much more specific, and that will be for a later study. But he writes in verse 2, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. The word adorned is the word cosmeto. It gives us our transliterated word cosmetics. It refers to the bride who has put on her cosmetics. She has become adorned. She has become, you can literally render it, decorated. Throughout the Bible, the beloved of God is referred to as a bride. Israel is called the bride of Jehovah. The church is called the bride of Christ. As, as John describes for us the permanent relocation of the city, his focus is on the beauty of the bride, and you, and you are, are arrested by the fact that he's speaking of the, both the beauty of the city and later the, the beauty of its inhabitants. They, they are viewed as one. We do the same thing. I can say to you that, that uh, I live in a uh, beautiful city, and you would know that immediately I'm talking about green grass and, and trees and, and fields and, and, and whatever. But I could also tell you I live in a wicked city. And you would know immediately I'm not talking about trees and grass and fields. I'm talking about people. We can refer to a city and be referring to both its citizens and its real estate. This is exactly what he's doing here. John is effectively saying, I saw the procession of the bride, and she is adorned. She is ready. And there she is with her bridegroom in this procession of the bridal party. And by the way, if the name of Jesus Christ, if you get that wrong, that'll make all the difference in the world. You have to have the right bridegroom to enjoy everything that we're going to study over the next period of years. I have no idea how long it'll be, but you've got to have that down. Same as in a wedding, right? The name of the bridegroom matters. 
And whenever I marry a couple, I'll always say, how do you want me to refer to you? And, and at that announcement, Mr. and Mrs., you got to get you got to get it just right. Some guys want the full name. Some guys want the nickname. Some guys want the first and middle name. And whatever it is, the name matters, but certainly the first name. I, I learned that the hard way. I, of course, I already knew it was true, but when I was a younger pastor and nervous as anybody else at the wedding scene, performing weddings, I, I actually can remember the one time I, I called the bridegroom by the wrong name. I know. That's what everybody did. <gasps> the groom's name was Richard. But I had performed a wedding a few months earlier, and his name was Robert. And, and in my haste to prepare for my little wedding notebook, everything that I'll read from, the vows and all of that, I, I cut and pasted the vows, the vows, and forgot to change his name from Robert to Richard makes my hands sweat just to think of that moment. <laughs> the moment came for the wedding vows, and I looked at her, and I said, Now, repeat after me. I, Suzanne, take you, Robert, to be my lawfully wedded husband. <gasps> the color drained from her face, and, 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 and the guy just sort of shuffled around, and I, I knew something. I mean, everybody kind of gasped, and I knew something was wrong. I looked down at my notes, and now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm completely flustered. I'm, I'm scanning. Was it Robert? Was it Richard? Was it Richard Roberts? Was it Robert Richards? <laughs> Do you want him or not? You ever seen that airplane commercial, want to get away? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I finally figured out what had happened, and I got the bride married to the right man. Let me tell you, the name matters. She wasn't wasn't about to say, Stephen, I understand. Don't worry, I'll call him Robert. (laughs) Not on your life. Not on your life. Let me tell you something. The name of your bridegroom matters. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. The Philippian jailer said, What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Call upon the name of the Lord. Call his name. Place your faith in all that that name represents, and you shall be saved. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, verse 13, we are looking for that blessed hope, heaven. Associated with that is, he goes on quickly and says, and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You get that name wrong, you're not in the bridal procession. You're going to live in the funeral procession forever. You will be a jilted bride because no one will keep his word like Jesus Christ will keep his word. He said, I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you and I'm coming back and I'm going to get you. And Can you depend on his word? Absolutely. Count on it. John is saying, here comes the bride. And with her, the bridegroom. He focuses 
for a moment on the beauty of the bride. She's adorned. Her cosmetics are there in place. She's decorated. In verse 3, John focuses on the father of the bride. Of course, the triune God is, can easily be seen. This is heaven's primary relationship. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The glory of heaven is the glory of God. We, the bride, are nothing without him. And even though we're going to be mesmerized by the description of heaven, it's empty without him. In fact, the stunning aspect in John's revelation is that which he emphasizes. The fact that God permanently now, forever, will dwell with man, redeemed man, his beloved. The Bible, by the way, gives us an interesting record of the dwelling places of God. First, God dwelt with, that is, he participated in fellowship. We're not sure what the theophany took in the form of God's presence, but he walked with Adam and even the cool of the garden, cool of the evening. Then he dwelt with Israel later in the tabernacle, later in the temple, his glory filling the Holy of Holies. Later, Jesus Christ came to earth and tabernacled among us. That same word is used here in Revelation 21. He came and literally pitched his tent among us. Today, God does not live in man-made temples. We are his temple, your body and mine. Uniquely as well is the assembly of the church that follows Christ, Ephesians 2, 22. He dwells there. He dwells literally, yet it is invisibly. We worship him whom we cannot see. But that's going to change. In fact, that's what John emphasizes. You ought to maybe underline or circle his emphasis. He says at the latter part of verse 3, and God himself will be among them. Can you believe that? God himself. We can't understand what that's going to look like. But we're told we're going to experience the glorious manifestation of God upon his throne. The Father seated The lamb were shown as well who occupies the throne, who shares it with him. The spirit brooding there in his presence. The greatest miracle, by the way, this new creation. The greatest miracle of our new bodies. The greatest wonder of the new earth. The greatest marvel of this celestial city is that we will individually have physical access to God himself. Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I desire that they also may be with me, that they may see my glory unhindered, undiminished. Heaven's greatest treasure will be our view of him, our bridegroom. Jesus said, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that you can be with me where I am. Going to heaven without Jesus Christ would be like a bride going on her honeymoon without her groom. It would be like a new bride moving into a a new home built by her husband, but on moving day she discovers the fact that he's decided to live in a different home, in fact in a different country. That's now a house. That's just real estate. The joy is gone from the bride's heart. 
this golden city, spectacular as it is in the universe, which I believe we will enjoy and explore, is nothing but real estate without our bridegroom. But there we will see him as our feeble, faltering faith, which we struggle so with, is turned into perfected sight, and we will see him, 1 John 3, 2, just as he is. We can't imagine it. So John reveals a permanent relocation of heaven, and with great emphasis and joy, He speaks of the primary relationship in heaven with our Lord, and now he reveals a profound reversal in heaven. His focus moves from the the beauty of the bride, past the father of the bride, to now the future of the bride, and some of the experiences we will have. Notice verse 4. We're told he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Now, John describes the joy of heaven by telling us not only what will be there, but what will not be there. In fact, things in heaven are so difficult to describe. Some of the first details given to us by John are things that aren't there. You might do the same thing. You might tell me I'm going to move to to, um, Arizona. Oh, what's it like? Well, there's no pollen, you might think. You're going to tell me what is not there that's here. And I'm sure that would be a wonderful thing. So John does the same. He begins by telling us what's not there. One author commenting on this passage said, Heaven will be the place of no more. No more what? Death, sadness, crying, or pain. It's as if God shouts in triumph and the believer with him, That's it! No more! Not in here. None of that. That's over. No more. You notice the first statement that serves, I believe, as a categorical reference to the context of all that will follow. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And I think because of that, we need to make a little correction here about heaven If we take this out of context, we assume we'll never shed tears again, not even tears of joy. See, we're all wired a little differently, aren't we? Even though we're going to be wired perfectly, emotions will exist, and how do you respond to the unbelievable grace of God even now and certainly then without at some point welling up in tears? What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about the context of what will follow. There will be no teary eyes. There will be no tears shed related to these events of life. That's all done away with. In other words, we will never shed a tear again because of death, sadness, or pain. But that doesn't mean we won't weep for joy. That doesn't mean we won't see some beautiful handiwork of his creation and our eyes fill up with tears of gratitude that that we are able to enjoy this. Frankly, I'm looking forward to having my emotions perfected so that I can weep more. Shed tears of joy. Respond emotionally in this manner. What John is saying is that God is going to wipe out disappointment. He's going to wipe out sadness. Not one tear will fall. The Greek emphasizes that. Simply because the contexts of 
Sadness and pain and death and mourning are forever gone. In other words, there will never be tears of misfortune, never tears over lost loves, never tears of uh, of remorse, no tears of regret ever. No tears related to these. And what are these four no mores? Maybe you can underline each one. The first is no more death. No more death. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the first intrusion into this fallen world was death. They immediately began to die. And they eventually did. At the outset of fallen humanity and to this very day, the promise of God has been kept. You sin and you shall surely what? Die. But in heaven, no more death. No more involvement with the things of death. No more sorrow over the dying and departed. And there are vast implications from the animal kingdom recreated by Christ to the very cellular structure of your bodies. Not even one cell will die in our reconstructed bodies. There is nothing of death in his new creation, which means then your body will never need replenishing, which means then you will never be fatigued. You'll never be tired. There are no tired people in heaven. It is indeed a place of eternal rest. Now that doesn't mean eternal inactivity. It isn't the rest of a rest home. This isn't the rest of people outside Cracker Barrel sitting in those rocking chairs. (laughs) They fill them all up so you can't sit down and and play checkers, the nerve of them. You know, it's not not that. Heaven is perpetual, ongoing, never-ending, never-dying, even at the molecular level of life, so that your body and mind will be as active as God commands and allows but never experiencing fatigue or wear and tear. Never. No more weakness. No more disease. No more decay. Not even a cavity. No coffin. No funeral or grave. Those things are all forgotten. All forgotten. The word goodbye will never be uttered. No more. John goes further. He writes, there will no longer be any mourning. You can translate that word sorrow. Certainly it's related to life as we know it now. Our lives can be inundated. We can be immersed in sorrow. In the late 1800s, a wonderful commentator, pastor, Educator J.C. Riley wrote this, Our worldly goods can be taken from us, and that causes sorrow. We are encompassed with difficulties and troubles, and we have sorrow. Our friends forsake us and look coldly on us, and we have sorrow. Those whom we love and lose brings us sorrow. Our own hearts are frail and full of corruption, and that brings us sorrow. We are persecuted for the gospel's sake, and that brings sorrow. We see those who are near and dear to us refusing to walk with God, and that brings sorrow. We live in a sorrowing, grieving world. 
But in heaven, no more sorrow. God will say, enough, enough. Not in here. There's another no more in this text. John writes, there will no longer be any crying. No, isn't that kind of redundant? No, in fact, it's an entirely different Greek word. The word is krage, which refers literally to shouting, screaming. Literally, someone lamenting in grief or anxiety because of something that has happened, either real or even imagined. I tracked this word through the secular Greek in resources that I have in the Greek New Testament, and it's interesting, as I'll give you a very, very quick overview. This, this word is used in a number of contexts. It is the crying of, of anguish. It is the scream of anger. This is the lamenting cry of the guilty for what they've done. This is the weeping and wailing of the condemned on their way to their execution. This is the cry of the mob, by the way, in Acts 7 as they rush to kill Stephen. It's a shriek. This is the the cry of a woman in labor. This is the sobbing of the depressed. This is the anguished wail of captured inhabitants of a defeated city as they are led away in slavery. This is that loud lamenting. Krage. No more. There will no longer be any cause for that kind of crying. No more. John writes further, there will no longer be any pain. This is a word that can encompass both physical and emotional, mental pain. No more pain. Begins certainly with with all of them. As Adam and Eve are cursed and earth with them, she is promised multiplied pain in childbirth. Genesis 3.16. Adam is promised painful thorns and, and a stubborn earth he has to plow to make a living. Genesis 3.18. This fallen couple soon experiences the shock and pain of the death of one of their sons by the hand of another son. And ever since Genesis 2 and 3, pain has boarded our train and accompanies us on our journey through life and it is in every compartment. You can't outrun it. You can't outdrive it. You can't erase it. You can't hide from it. You can't take a vaccine against it. You can't build walls around you and keep yourself away from it. Pain is so much a part of life that that Job says it well when he cries out, man is born for pain as sparks fly upward. God will say, no more, not in here. There's no context for that. That means there are no asylums. There are no more emergency rooms. There there are no more bouts of arthritis. There's no more fever or cancer. There, There are no more broken hearts. There are no more dreams painfully shattered. No more missed opportunities. 
No more damaged friendships. No more fearful anxieties. No more painful consequences. No more prison sentences. No more painful memories. No more. No more. By the way, no more pain. That's the last time you see the word pain in the Bible. And it occurred to me, you've got to get to the end. Because pain accompanies us from, from the fall of mankind all the way to the end. But you get to this description and you find it now, it will disappear completely. No more. John writes at the end of verse 4, note that these first things have passed away. In other words, he's saying this is the old order. This is the old creation. This is the old world system. This is the old earth. All of that stuff is gone forever. And I want you to notice the significance of this. The Apostle John is actually describing the reversal of the effects of sin and of the curse. Heaven is the great reversal. All that came because of sin is now taken away, reverted back, reversed death to life, sorrow to song, this crying into the consolation of Christ, pain into everlasting pleasure. You know what this means to the believer? You know what it means to you and to me? This means no matter what you might have gone through in your past, it means no matter what you might be going through today, it is not the last word. This is the last word. God will have the final say. And what you discover in these two chapters, what he says will finally occur is utterly glorious, absolutely incomprehensible. But even as we begin, it's wonderful. And we've really just begun the description of his presence with us and this glorious place. Thank you, Father. We're grateful for you beginning to describe this eternal state in terms of our immediate fellowship with you, your presence, you, God the Son, our kinsman, redeemer, our Boaz, and we, your Ruth, redeemed. And we will be able to see the glory of you, God our Father. And thank you, as we learned earlier, for bringing us from death unto life, following after the decaying, depraved patterns of this world system and our own fallen heart. But God, but you rescued us with your kindness and your mercy. And we will see you. If you do not know that this bridegroom is your bridegroom, maybe you've been trusting in your own name, and you would say to me, Stephen, I've got a good name. I've got a good name. People know my name, and they know it's more. It's upstanding. I've got a good reputation. Uh, I, can, I, I can depend on myself. You've got the wrong name. You're trusting in the wrong one. 
right where you sit, you can acknowledge your sinfulness and utter lostness, your total inability apart from the grace of God to even believe. Cast yourself upon him and have this but God who's rich in mercy applied to your life. Ask for that now. If you're a believer, would you just pause and thank him for these no mores? It isn't because you're worthy, nor I. It is because he is all worthy. And we belong to him. Thank him. Thank him not only for the beauty of the bride and the father of the bride, but the future of the bride. Thank him for all of that. Take a moment and thank him. Now. Thank you.